0: And then instead of going over to the sink, that's you know right over there by the by the cupboard, they uh, go through their back door, and you you see them go out back with the the glasses, and you see them that you see that they have this rain catcher set up, and uh, it hasn't rained in a while, you know, so there's some water in the rain catcher, uh, but you're assuming it's been there a while, and sure enough, they go ahead and like kind of empty some of the water from the rain catcher into your glass, and it's. Uh, it's a little hazy, right? Um, and they come back in and they offer it to you and you are sitting there like now holding this sort of hazy glass of water that you just watched them get out of a rain catcher. And they have their own glass of it. And uh, you're, feeling, you're feeling yourself today, right? You're feeling pretty bold. So you say, uh, oh my goodness, uh, what's wrong with your plumbing? And they say, What? They say, well, uh, is, your, is, your, is something wrong with your pipes, or is your sink broken, or are, are all of your sinks broken? And they kind of look at you real strangely, right? And, and they walk over and uh, turn the sink on, and no, the sink's fine. Like water, good, you know, clean, filtered water is coming out of the sink. And they, they shut it off, and they say, no, why do you ask? And you're just staring at your glass of drinking water. That has come from the rain catcher outside. And you're staring between your friend, standing over their sink, that works perfectly well, staring back at your dirty glass of drinking water, and you're kind of going back and forth. How would you feel in that moment? It's pretty absurd, isn't it? To imagine that someone with Perfectly good drinking water coming out of their taps, like we're used to, would instead of taking advantage of that, uh, collect water in rain catchers in their backyard and use that as their primary source of drinking water. Particularly when the water has been sitting for a while, has been stagnant, has been getting cloudy and hazy and growing all kinds of little critters in it, right? Um, That feeling of absurdity, right, the feeling of kind of disgust and maybe concern for your friend's mental health and well-being, is something that I want us to hold on to today because uh, the the story that I've just shared is a slightly updated example uh, of an image that Jeremiah uses in the text that we're going to be looking at today. Uh, A text that is really all about worship and what worship even is and how, how worship is meant to shape us into a people of, of justice, into a people who truly embody God's will and God's love in our world today, and how often we settle for, su- for a pale, cheap, possibly even toxic imitation of God rather than the God who created us and calls us and loves us. And Jeremiah says it's, it's as foolish as this. It's as foolish as choosing the glass over here, when, when this one is freely available to you and ready for you and, and, and completely completely accessible in every way, right? And saying like, no, 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 we'll take this one, please. Thank you. And then taking a big long drink out of it. Disgusting. Ironic and absurd. Uh, and so that's what we're going to talk about today. Today's, today's going to be all about worship and what worship is and who God is and how worship connects us to God and what, what the dangers are of getting that wrong. So, uh, before we go too much further, I thought it would be important for us to actually practice worshiping together, singing some songs together. So uh, if you are in the building with us, I'm going to invite you to stand here in a, in a moment. If you're in the, li- in the live stream with us, uh, then obviously you can stand or sit or do whatever is safe and comfortable for you where you are. Uh, also, Nathan and I were talking about this before uh, the gathering. I wanted to remind you uh, that the live chat feature in the, in the YouTube uh comment section is really good for us to connect. So if you're at home and you're like, Watching YouTube on your TV, feel free to pull it up on your phone too. Mute, mute your phone so it's not doing double noise or whatever, and have the live chat there. And again, remember, if you're in the building, totally cool to be on your phone in the building too, right? That's fine. Uh, be in the live chat and connecting because even though we are scattered all over the country right now, we are one church, one congregation, and so whether we're singing songs together or whether we're discussing the sermon together or laughing together, whatever we're doing, it's something. It's this is a time that the Holy Spirit gathers us as God's people. Uh, so I want to pass it over to Nathan and invite, again, uh, invite all of you to worship with us together. But, uh, such a good song. I love it. Um, well, welcome back, everyone. <laughs> uh, this, se- this series is called Black Sheep. It's our fall series. And uh, we are talking about what what is the experience of being faithful to Jesus in such a way that it makes you stick out. And in this series, it's not stick out from the world around us, which I think is a common thing we talk about, that that faith will often make us countercultural to to the larger world, to the dominant culture. Uh, We're actually talking about what happens when faith makes you stick out from, like, the church, from other believers, from maybe the majority of the people that we know that consider consider ourselves Christians. Uh, I think increasingly over the last several years... A lot of us, particularly here at Catalyst, uh, I know a lot of our, our uh, long-distance folks, part of the way you found us even is because uh, you didn't fit where you were anymore. And that became increasingly obvious to the point that there was a, you know, a breaking point and, and you, you came here. I know a lot of us here, like when I came to Catalyst, I was told, yeah, we're kind of the black sheep church of our denomination. Okay. <laughs> you know, because we're weird. Uh, we, because the way we engage faith and the way we engage Jesus and the way we understand who God is and how God shapes us and how God sends us into the world is different from a lot of the dominant culture. Uh, and and over the last several years, I think it's it's gotten to a point where a lot of us feel like uh, to quote Zoolander, we're taking crazy pills, right? Like, like what's wrong with me that, that this, what seems so obvious to me is so diametrically opposite from everyone else, whether it comes to, again, particular faith practices, like who's welcome and who's not, or uh, the way we engage with politics, or the way we love our neighbors, or who even counts as our neighbor, all those kinds of things, right? That, I mean, we, we could all make our big lists. Uh, and so in this series, we are hanging out with the prophet Jeremiah. Uh, Jeremiah, so we have this handy-dandy little timeline. Jeremiah was born uh, in the decades leading up to an event called the exile, uh, which is when the southern nation of Judah was conquered by the Babylonians and completely decimated. Uh, The the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed. The walls of the city of Jerusalem were were torn down. And all of the what we we today would call the cultural elites, right? So the, the king and the king's family, all of the nobility, uh, the priests, all of the, like the scribes and the legal leaders, like anyone who had any kind of cultural influence was was removed. They were forcibly deported to Babylon to live in the shadow of the empire, and uh, everyone else was left to try to kind of get along in, in, the, in the rubble, you know, to survive after the apocalypse of this destruction. Jeremiah was uh, called as a prophet when he was really young, right, we saw that last week, uh, to warn God's people that if they did not repent and change their ways, that the exile was going to happen. Uh, and, And they didn't listen, obviously, right? And so Jeremiah not only had the unpleasant task of warning the people that the exile was coming, but then he also lived through it and was left behind and was pastoring and shepherding God's people in the wake of this devastation. So he's, he's a singular figure in history, and it makes him a, a really interesting study for us, because as you can imagine, being the guy who said, uh, the way you're doing your politics and your faith is bad and wrong, and God is judging you for it, did not make him popular at parties. And we see this actually throughout Jeremiah's ministry that the very things that God called him to say, like the very reasons God appointed him as a prophet, made him an outcast among his own people. They didn't want to hear it. Um, but Jeremiah felt like he had no choice, that God's call on him was so strong uh, that he had no choice but to continue to prophesy. And so uh, we began last week looking at his call in Jeremiah chapter 1, and a couple of the things I wanted just to remind you of, because they're really, uh, they're really important for this week, were uh, one of the hallmarks of a lot of the prophets is that they use these really strong, compelling images Right, and you're going to see that today. Jeremiah uses a couple of them that I think are really, they're really potent and they're really provocative. They're things that kind of stick in your brain. At least they've, they've stuck in my brain for sure. Uh, and then the other one is that, remember, people don't listen. right? Uh, the prophet's job is not to convince. The prophet's job is to bear witness to the truth. OK? Because as we know from Jeremiah's own example, um, people don't often want to hear that they're wrong, right? And, and it is great if in the prophetic witness-bearing people listen and repent and change, but usually that is not the case, right? And, and, and more often what we see the prophet doing is bearing faithful witness, watching whatever they warned was going to happen, happen, and then instead of a self-righteous, I told you so, they offer holy compassion and love, okay? Okay. So just kind of remember those things as we go into Jeremiah for this week. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn with us to Jeremiah chapter 2. We're just going into the next chapter. Uh, If you grab one of the Bibles out of the back, that's on uh, page 447. And in Jeremiah 2, we are now getting into where God is making God's case against the people. Okay, so uh, Jeremiah very self-consciously styles this section of his book as a legal document, right? So if he were doing it today, it would like he would be doing it like a like a courtroom document or like a jury or like a, a, a um, subpoena, right? I was gonna say jury summons, but we're the jury today. We're listening in, right? That's that's kind of the thing is as we're reading this passage, we're imagining that we are a jury who has been gathered to weigh the evidence. And, and what Jeremiah is presenting is God's evidence that His, that God's people, the nation of Judah, has uh, has wronged Him, has not held up their end of the covenant. Okay, and and we're also introducing a metaphor that's very common in the prophets. It's actually very common through the rest of the Bible. Um, it's, it's an image that I think a lot of us, uh, particularly if you already grew up in church, are very familiar with, but it's one that really comes from the prophets. And it is, it is the idea that, the, that God's people are God's bride, okay? That, that, the, that the relationship between God and God's people is like a marriage, okay? Okay? Uh, again, again, that's something, you know, in the, in the New Testament, many of the authors often call the church the bride of Christ, right? And, and, and this is something that's a very popular and I think common metaphor, but the prophets originated it. So for Jeremiah's people, this was probably like pretty, pretty provocative, the idea that, that they are God's bride and that by worshiping other gods, they have been unfaithful. They've been an unfaithful spouse, right? They've been running around, on God. Now, the thing that I think is going to be difficult for us to keep in mind, because we get, I think because the marriage metaphor is so uh, familiar to us, is that Jeremiah is talking about political realities here. Okay? By saying that God's people are worshiping other gods, what's actually happening is that the Babylonian Empire is looming large over the nation of Judah and all of these other small nations around Judah. And they're they are, uh, they're nervous that Babylon is going to come and conquer them, which we know Babylon ultimately does, right? So what they're doing all through Jeremiah's early years is scrambling and wheeling and dealing with all of the other nations, trying to build a big enough coalition of nations that they can keep Babylon away, right? They're trying to beef themselves and their neighbors up enough that Babylon will decide that they're too much trouble to deal with, Right? Uh, And so these alliances that they're making involve worshiping the gods of these other nations. And that's the heartbeat of kind of what we're going to poke at today is like, yeah, but like what does worship mean, right? What does it mean to say that they're worshiping other nations? Okay, And, and the thing we have to keep in mind is that for Jeremiah and for God, worship is very tangible. It is not so much about the songs we sing and the prayers we pray as the lives we lead when we leave. Okay, Um, you're going to see that real clearly here. So what we're going to read, keep in mind, we're a jury, right? Jeremiah is inviting us into the courtroom to hear the prosecution's case that God's people have been unfaithful. All right, so let's begin reading in verse 1. God says, I remember how eager you were to please me as a young bride long ago, how you loved me, And followed me even through the barren wilderness. In those days, Israel was holy to the Lord, the first of his children. All who harmed his people were declared guilty, and disaster fell on them. I, the Lord, have spoken. Okay, so the first part of the case is God saying, I held up my end of the bargain, right? When we were in the wilderness together, I, you know, I liberated you from Egypt, I preserved you through the wilderness, and any time an enemy came against you, I protected you from them. How must that sound when they're worried about Babylon falling on them, right? God says, you remember, I've always kept you safe. I've always protected you when someone came against you. So God's saying, right, I've, I've held up my end of the bargain. The implication here is that Israel has not, Judah has not, God's people have not. How have they not? Well, let's move on. Listen to the word of the Lord, people of Jacob, all you families of Israel. This is what the Lord says. What did your ancestors find so wrong with me that led them to stray so far from me? They worshiped worthless idols only to become worthless themselves. Hold hold that in your mind. We're going to come back to that. Right? They worship worthless idols, became worthless themselves. Okay? They did not ask, Where is the Lord who brought us safely out of Egypt and led us through the barren wilderness? Lands of desert and pits, a land of drought and death where no one lives or even travels. And when I brought you into a fruitful land to enjoy its bounty and its goodness, you defiled my land and corrupted the possession I had promised you. The priest did not ask, Where is the Lord? Those who taught my word ignored me, and the rulers turned against me, and the prophets spoke in the name of Baal, worshiping their, or wasting their time on worthless idols. Therefore, I will bring my case against you, says the Lord. I will even bring charges against your children's children in the years to come. Okay. So what did, what did Israel do that was so bad? Well, God said they worshipped worthless idols and therefore became worthless themselves. This word worthless here that the New Living Translation uses, it's the Hebrew word hevel. And it's the same word, I don't know if you know Ecclesiastes, it's like the super depressing book in the Bible, right? It's like the emo book. Um, In the old King James, it opens with vanity, vanity, everything is vanity, right? If you read it in more modern translations, it might say emptiness, emptiness, everything is emptiness, or worthless, worthless, everything is worthless. But it's, it's this Hebrew word hevel, and it literally means vapor, okay? So, like, if you're driving in the mornings and there's that mist that's kind of, like, in the air and you know that by the time the sun fully comes up, it, like, burns that away, that, like, that's, that's what this word refers to, right? This thing that's just there and gone. I was actually, I was like, when I was looking for this picture, I first typed in vapor and it was, like, a bunch of people with vape pens, <laughs> right? But I thought, I, I didn't use that picture, obviously, but I thought about that, right? Like a vape pen, the whole point of it is that people want to smoke, but like not bother anyone else, right? So they designed this thing so that when they, when they blow it out, it's like gone instantly into the, into the air, and it's just like not around anymore. So like kind of still works, right, for the illustration. Vapor, emptiness, nothing, <laughs> you know, just a thing and gone. Jeremiah and actually, many of the Hebrew prophets, they understand that, that these other gods, these gods of these other nations, that's what they are. They're vapor. They're havel. They're mist. They're nothing, really. And God says that when you worship something that's vapor, you become vapor. When you worship something that's empty, you become empty. Uh, it's this principle that, again, you find all over the prophets. You are what you worship. Okay? Now, obviously, we need to dig into that, dive into that, and uh, kind of understand what Jeremiah is talking about here. But before we do that, I do want to take us back into worship. Because this, this is the heart. Uh, again, I think sometimes when you read the prophets and you see God saying, I don't like it when you worship the other gods, we can kind of be afraid that maybe God's upset because God is like jealous and petty. And I think it's important for us to see here that, that what God hates about idolatry is that it destroys us. God did not create us to be empty, meaningless, vapor, nothings. And so the, the problem with idolatry is that when we worship nothingness, we become nothingness. When we give ourselves over to vapor, we become vapor. And God says, that's not what I created you for. That's not why I called you. That's not why I liberated you to be empty, meaningless nothings, to have lives that are vanity and nothing else. So before we dive too much further in that, I just think, it, I think it's good for us to pause and to return to singing this song, um, celebrating who God is, and then who God transforms us into being when we worship God. So Nathan, if you would. talk about vapor, as we talk about how the people are becoming vapor, uh, to recognize that when we say they're worshiping these other gods, they haven't, like, quit worshiping God, at least in the, the uh, obvious ways, right? They're still going to temple, they're still doing the sacrifices, like, they're still bringing in their tithes, they're still doing their prayers, uh, so, so it begs the question, right, like it begs the question: Well, what's the problem then? Right? How do you how, maybe, how do you tell what how do you tell what someone's worshiping? If worship is not the the prayers and the songs and, the, and and the the tithes and all of that kind of stuff, then what is it? And and again, we have from the prophets this 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 constant refrain of God. Like in in Isaiah, God says, um, "Do you think I need dead cows?" Like, do you think I just need you to come kill things at the temple for me? Like, no, Uh, I I own the cattle on a thousand hills, right? I made them. I I can make more cows if that's what I needed, right? What I need from you is not sacrifice. Uh, What I need from you is justice, a just life, mercy, right? Um, Jesus, in, in his day... He talks about it in terms of fruit and trees, right? You, you can tell what kind of tree it is by what fruit it grows, right? You can tell if it's a good tree, if it has good fruit. You can tell if it's a sick tree by the fact that the fruit are sickly. And that's really what Jeremiah is getting at here, what God is getting at here, is saying, When God is saying, you've become worthless, it's not like they all became tone deaf and started writing bad music or, or something like that, right? Right? Um, when God says they're worthless, it's because the lives that they're living do not align with Yahweh, the God who liberated them from Exodus or from Egypt, right? The God who preserved them through the wilderness. They're living lives that look more like the gods of the nations around them. The fruit that they're bearing looks like uh, the Canaanite gods than Yahweh. And we see that all, you read through the prophets and you can tell what the people are doing because you can tell what the prophets are angry about, right? Uh, the kings are not ruling justly, right? They're, they're, they're privileging the powerful and oppressing the weak. Uh, the courts are unjust, right? Again, often it, te- it tends to be that those who have the gold make the rules. than that there's true justice for everyone regardless of who they are or what their status is. Um, You see it in the way they treat people who are not part of their nation, right? People that we would today call immigrants or refugees, right? The outsiders. You see it in the way they treat the vulnerable. In those days, it was the widows and the orphans, right? Um, And God says you you can look at all of this, and you can see the fruit, and that is a clear signal for who you're really worshiping. Because you can give Yahweh lip service all Sunday long, or Saturday long, if you're a Jew, right? That's the Jewish holy day. Um, But if you walk out into the world and you do not live a just life, a a life that's oriented toward Yahweh, then you're not worshiping me, right? I think about... um, uh, it's worth, it's worth noting, too, that this is not an individual problem, right? This is not Jeremiah going, here, here, here are the names of all of the individuals who are behaving badly. This is a systemic problem. It's the kings and the priests and the scribes, which are like the lawyers, like the legal system, the judges, right? It's, it's that the, the systems have become corrupted because the systems have been oriented towards these other gods, and so uh, everything is worthless from top to bottom. That's, that's the problem. That's why, you know, that's why someone like Jeremiah is completely excluded. Someone who's faithful. Not just individual sins. It's also systemic sins, corporate sins. I think it's worth noting today that, that we see a lot of the same kinds of patterns and behaviors in, in the church at large in America. Uh, I have lost count of the number of non-Christians that I know whose Biggest complaint is that Christians don't act more like Jesus. And again, they're not even Christian, right? They, they, uh, they give Jesus the same amount of respect as they would give any other like, good historical figure, right? Like Gandhi or Mother Teresa or whatever, you know. Like, yeah, I like Jesus. Uh, I actually wish Christians would act more like him. We're, we're, getting, we're getting complaints even from people who shouldn't know better than we do, and yet they seem to know better than we do, right? That, that, that many Christians today, uh, our lives do not imitate Jesus' life, and the things that we care about, the way our lives are oriented, the politics and policies that we pursue are not aligned with Jesus, right? Um, the, the, the pastors and the politicians who, who use Jesus' name but have no apparent interest in the life Jesus lived and in in the way he composed himself and the way he operated in the world and the way he taught us to operate, right? But man, his name will sure get you votes or sure get you clicks or sure get you, you know, butts in the pews or whatever, This is the kind of thing Jeremiah is raging against. And it's, I, I told you that we were going to do this, uh, this image that's really been haunting me. Here it is. Because God is fed up. If you couldn't tell from what we've read so far, right? God has absolutely had enough of this. But it's, it's an anger that is the result of a deep grief. God is, God is absolutely broken by what God sees the people doing. And here's what, here's, what, here's what Jeremiah says in verse 10, uh, I think it's 10 to 14, so that it lasts for today. God says, go west and look in the, in the land of Cyprus, or go to the east and search for the land of Kedar." Has anyone ever heard of something as strange as this? Right? He's like, you can, you can look wherever you want, you're not going to hear something as crazy as this. Has any nation ever traded its gods for new ones? Right? No. He's like, that. this does not happen, even though they're not gods at all. And yet my people have exchanged their glorious God for worthless idols. The heavens are shocked at such a thing and shrink back in horror and dismay, says the Lord. For my people have done two evil things. They have abandoned me, the fountain of living water. And they have dug for themselves cracked cisterns that can hold no water at all. Uh, When I went to Israel, uh, back, uh, it's been a little over 10 years ago now, the place where I was staying uh, had these big cisterns dug. Um, They kind of look like this. And uh, again, when you live in an arid climate where there's not a lot of reliable drinking water, you have to dig a big hole in the ground, and then when it rains, this hole will fill up with water, and then you hope that that water will last long enough till the next rain. And all of your drinking water and your cooking water and all of that, it comes out of this hole that you, that you fill up with water. Cistern. And God says, my people have turned their back on me, the fountain of living water. Right? And if that weren't bad enough, you know, here's, here's the fountain of living water and they've turned their back on me, so the water's you know right back here. And then... Instead, they've dug cisterns right here, and they're not even good cisterns. They're cracked, so they don't even hold water. It's absurd, because we, you know, you know this, right? We need water to live. We can't last more than a couple days without water. And, and, and uh, Judah was on the edge of a desert. That's where, it's right where the Dead Sea is, right? And God says there's this fountain of living water flowing right back here. And yet, not only have they turned away from it, they've dug these cisterns that don't even hold water. It is an intentionally absurd image. It ha- I, I said, it's been haunting me since I read it. To imagine thirsty people, people who are dying of thirst, scooping dirty, stagnant water out of the bottom of a cistern because most of the good stuff leaked out into the ground, and like drinking this disgusting, filthy water So it will part, it will quench their thirst and suffering for it, dying because of it. And right behind them, right behind them is a pure stream of living water, which again, by the way, uh, in the Bible, when the Bible says living water, uh, what they meant was running water, right? Living water was like a river or a stream or something like that. The opposite, of course, dead water, still water. Dead, dead water because, you know, if water sits for too long, right? That's where the creepy crawlies get in it. You get some amoebas and stuff. And that uh, yeah, it's not good for us. Not good for our, our bodies. So living water, dead water. Running water, good water. Life-giving water. Water from a cistern, mm, better than nothing. But it doesn't compare to the living water. And God says when we turn away from God and turn to idols... It's like drinking from a cracked cistern when you're sitting with your back to the river. You'll, n- you'll never quench your thirst. It will never be enough. and it will always, always always end up poisoning you. So I think about, I think about these, you know, these pastors who, who put their faith in politicians and teach their churches to do the same, and I weep. Because it's like they're digging cracked cisterns in the desert with their back to the, to the, the, the eternal water of God's spring. Right? I think about these politicians who say, in God we trust, but then they go on to pass policies and support initiatives uh, that harm the vulnerable, right? that privilege the powerful and exploit the weak. And I weep because, again, it's like they're getting their water from a rain catcher, from like they've, they've, they've tied a tarp up that has a bunch of holes in it. And they're getting water from it while they've got perfectly good plumbing inside. And then I think about us, you know, at the individual level. We can move away from the systemic to the individual. How often do we look for refreshment, for, uh, for satisfaction from things that will never satisfy us? Are we really producing the fruit of the Spirit, right? Are our joys full of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and generosity and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control? Is that what our lives are producing? Or are we too worshiping something that is empty and so producing emptiness, nothingness? These are the questions I want us to bring to the table today. There's a time in Jesus' ministry where he stands at the steps of the temple. And he says, anyone who is thirsty, come and drink from the waters of life. I think one of the challenges of this series, uh, as we've been working through, Sonia and Ashley and I have been working through a lot of the messages, and uh, man, it's just, it's that... uh, it's that it's that it's that anger at folks who won't listen that covers a deep grief knowing that they're becoming they're becoming empty because they're following emptiness and if we get real honest it's cuz then it swings around and then we start to wonder about ourselves am i am i truly drinking deeply of the waters of life or am i also looking to satisfy my thirst with things that will never satisfy And so, we're going to come to the table. We're going to hear Jesus' invitation. We're going to to try to trust. We're going to try to to come by faith to the table and trust that, that God is enough to satisfy us, that God is enough to protect us, that God is enough to provide for us, and that we don't need to look anywhere else. Before we come to the table, I'm going to lead us in a prayer of examine, and I'm going to invite you to just consider uh, if you know what your life says you're worshiping, right? Opportunity for some honest, deep reflection, and then we're going to pray together, and we'll come to the table. So here's here's the first question. Looking at my life, who is at the center, right? Who or what is the object of my worship? now where am I tempted to look for sustenance and security other than God, right? What are, what are the spaces or the places or the people where I'm tempted to look for those things other than God? finally, how can I orient my worship towards God this week? What can I do to make sure I'm drinking from the water of life that's freely available? Let's pray together. God, you have gathered us this morning uh, that we might hear this provocative announcement from Jeremiah where you list the great wrongs that your people do to you when we look for security and for sustenance anywhere else. We confess that we too find that we are guilty of this and we live among a people who are guilty of this. We confess that too often we uh, look for refreshment from cracked cisterns that can't hold anything at all and ignore the, the water of life that you freely give us. And so today we come to your table. We come as people who hunger and thirst, and we pray that as we receive these elements that they would be a spiritual food, that in receiving them we might know you better and receive the grace that we need to be your people in the world. Thank you for your endless completely free, no-strings-attached love for us. And may we find refreshment in you this week. We offer these prayers when we approach your table now in the name of your son, Jesus. The night that Jesus was betrayed, he shared this meal with his disciples. During that meal, he broke bread and he gave it to them and he said, this is my body broken for you, take it and eat it. When the meal was finished, he gave them a drink, a cup of wine. He said, this is my blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins, take it and drink it. And so now we too eat and drink, and as we do, we remember Jesus' death until he returns. Uh, as we're going, there's, there's one other thing I wanted to highlight from, uh, from Jeremiah's uh, prophecy there, and it was, it was how the institutional failure happened. Uh, and what we see is that uh, it was because God's people uh, the priests, the, 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 the priests and, and the kings and everyone, they were not engaged in faithfully telling and retelling and retelling and retelling the story of God. So check out, um, here's uh, a bit that we read already, but I just wanted to read it again. It's verse eight. Uh, God said, the priests did not ask, where is the Lord? Those who taught my word ignored me and the rulers turned against me and the prophets spoke in the name of Baal, wasting their time on worthless idols. Um, the antidote in many ways to uh, to worshiping falsely is to be sure that we are regularly, consistently orienting ourselves towards God, telling the good story over and over and over again. And it's, it's what, if you've been around cattles, you know, we call them the spiritual practices. So we have the, you know, the spiritual practices guide. We have the one that's for kids. So parents, you can do them with your kids and help your kids learn to tell the good story again and again. Um, obviously, we do, we do that here in our worship with the songs that we sing and with the stuff that we do. But um, I, just, I just gotta tell you, I, I have found that if you rely on once a week Um, We get so many other stories coming at us all the time, it it makes it really hard to uh, be sure that we're drinking from the waters of life and not being sold dirty water at the bottom of a leaking cistern. And so uh, if you're virtual, uh, these links are available in the video description uh, as well. And uh, if you're obviously if you're in person, these are on the wall as you walk out. But uh, if you don't know where to start, these are just a, kind of a quick start guide to spiritual practices. If you already have spiritual practices, um, this might be a great time to recommit to those. Um, to really, to really recommit to telling yourself the good story and and hearing the good story uh, from scripture and and from your neighbors, you know, here at Catalyst. Um, because if we don't do that, that's where we end up. Uh, we wake up one day and realize it's been. Uh, weeks or months or maybe even years since we've had a drink of living water, and uh, we that you know we realize why we're so thirsty. Uh, so, Catalyst, you're going. I want to send you with this, uh, with this blessing. God makes God's own love and life available to us freely and abundantly. Uh, it's not something we have to earn or deserve. It's something that is available to us. All that may be required is that we turn away from the idols that we filled our lives with and turn back to God and drink deeply. That's what Jesus said. Anyone who is thirsty, come and drink. So would you go into a world that is desperately thirsty and that needs to know that the water that will truly satisfy them uh, for eternity is freely available? Go in the grace and peace of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and we will see you next week. God's forgotten about you. Here's some pain medicine. Let's go!